James 1, 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. We are in, uh, come to the end of James chapter 1. And James so far has really been an amazing book to explore as we have seen the truths within the Word of God. And I've, I've absolutely been blown away. And, and out of this uh, chapter, probably these verses, almost more than any other, are some of the biggest indictment verses that we could read. Meaning that this is the, the, kind of the proof is in the pudding, if you will, that shows the reality of what an authentic faith looks like. Uh, I came upon a, um, a book a while back called Blink by Malcolm Gladwell. And in this book, he tells this story um, about an art dealer by the name of Gianfranco Bacina who approached the J. Paul Getty Museum in California in September of 1983. He had in his possession this very rare marble statue dating from the 6th century B.C. It's what is known as a kuros. And it's a, it's a sculpture of a male youth standing with his left leg forward and his arms at his sides. And there are only about 200 kuroi in existence. And most have been recovered, uh, badly damaged, or in fragments from grave sites or archaeological digs. But this one was almost perfectly preserved. It stood close to almost seven feet tall, so it's huge. And it's a kind of light color, it had a kind of a light-colored glow that set it apart from other ancient works it was an extraordinary find, extraordinary find, and Bucina's asking price was just under $10 million. Now, this is in September of 1983. I don't care, even now, $10 million is a lot of money. And so he's asking this museum for $10 million. So if you were the caretaker or the person who was over this museum, what would you do at that moment in time? You're not just going to shell out $10 million. You're going to do your research to make sure that you're getting the real deal. So you want to make sure that this is a real thing. So this museum actually moved very, very cautiously. They took the statue and began running it through a, a thorough investigation. Was it like other Kuroi? Uh, from a first glance, it seemed yes, it looked like it, but they couldn't identify where it was found. Although this man, Buccina, had a detailed history of documents related to its more recent history, he stated that it had been under the, uh, in the collection of a Swiss physician uh, who, for, since the 1930s, and before that, it had, he had purchased it from a Greek art dealer. And so then they took some actual physical tests, examining the surface with all the latest scientific equipment, and concluded that it was covered in a layer of calcite, which was significant because it showed that it was very old and not a contemporary fake. So the museum was satisfied, um, and 14 months later, they agreed to buy it, and in the fall of 1986, it went on display for the first time. Newspapers, magazines ran stories about the statue, praising it for all of its grandeur and beauty. But there was a problem. The kudos didn't look, like, uh, didn't look quite right, and one Italian art historian noticed it. He couldn't put his finger on what was wrong exactly, but he knew something was wrong. He just found himself staring at the fingernails. They didn't look right. Then another expert, this time one who was the foremost expert on Greek sculpture, was taken to see it by the museum's curator. And when they got, when they got there and they examined it, they said, uh, don't buy this. They said, we already did. They said, we'll see if you can get your money back because it's not real. And that led the alarm bells to go off. So they started doing more and more texts. They started tests. They started checking the backstory, and it started to unravel. 
What did these experts see that caused them to question this piece of art that others missed? See, they intuitively, because they had stared so long at the authentic thing, and they knew it inside and out, these individuals had invested their life looking at what was real, that there was something about this that just didn't set right. And, and tests proved that these experts were right because they had known the real thing so well that they could finally identify the fake when they saw it. As Christians, we have to, in other words, place ourselves under these battery of tests of the Word of God and ask God to purify us and show us who He is to see if we are the real deal. Because there are many of us, we look great on the outside from a faith perspective. We can say, praise the Lord. We might even come to church. We might even give. We could be a member. We could be an elder. We could even be a pastor. But the reality is, is that if your heart's not there, that's, then you're not real. I've known too many people that have gone through the motions. And James is showing us in providing some tests, if you will, to see if you're really in the faith. Some signs of salvation and how God's salvation will work out within each one of our hearts. Because it has to go beyond ourselves. Our faith has to overflow outside of us and extend to other people. And that's what James is talking or showing us today. So we need to submit our lives to the authority of God's Word, asking Him to probe us and show us Himself and who we are so that we truly might experience the joy of knowing Him. But before we jump into our text today to see these tests, let's take a moment to ask God to bless the message time together. Heavenly Father, we come before you knowing that you are, you alone are God. That you are awesome, that you are loving, that you are pure, you are truth, and you're also a God of wrath. We know that we are not coming before an earthly ruler, one that is finite, one that is infinite, that knows each one of our thoughts knows our actions before we do them. Lord, you know our hearts inside and out. And yet you've given us your word and loved us when we were unlovable. And yet, Lord, your word continues to testify to the reality of who we are. Because of your love for us, you desire us to change, become more like you, and you've given us your spirit to help show us who you are and to help us become more like your son. And Lord, as we submit ourselves to the Word of God today, we pray that your Spirit might sift us, might change us, might convict us of who you are and where we fall short. And so, Lord, please let our religion be pure, and may we be challenged to submit the entirety of our lives to your sovereignty, that we truly might experience freedom and fullness of joy. So be with us, convict us, Challenge our hearts that we might be more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, we jump in right at verse 26 of James chapter 1. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. There are certain verses that you read, you don't need to go into the Greek very much because it's so obvious what it states just from the onset. So James wants us to know that if our faith is real, it will show up in our speech, in our words. 
James introduces the very subject of our speech. He will elaborate on this more in chapter 3, but it's interesting that he introduces the subject now. See, James knew our propensity to grumble about our life situations. He was well familiar with Jewish history, which is scattered with testimony about our propensity to grumble, complain, and speak ill of others. Now, notice that he addresses how one views himself. If you view yourself as religious, in other words, if you think of yourself as a follower of Christ, but you don't bridle your tongue, you are deceiving yourself. He wants us to see that true believers will seek to have their speech match their faith. Have their words match the faith they espouse, which means that we won't seek to gossip, slander, criticize, or to bring others down as to bring ourselves up. The tongue is a very powerful tool, and we must learn to bridle it, just like with a horse, to bring it under control, to to force it to go in a certain direction, as James says. So we see here, as true believers, we are to control our tongues. That's what it's talking about, to control our tongues. This is not talking about language, because we know that we can slander, gossip, bring down people in whatever tongue or language that you might speak. Some of you can even do it in multiple languages. We have to be very careful with our tongues because we have the, the opportunity to bless or to curse. We have the opportunity to heal as well as hurt, to build up as well as break down. Bad words such as gossip and the like are like sparks of fire in a forest. It only takes one or two to light and destroy a life. Have you ever had someone gossip about you? You ever had someone say something about you? Maybe, I mean, it's not even verbally. It could be online, rumors all the time. It's, it's hard right now to even follow the news because you don't know what's being said is true or not. Everyone's offering up his or her perspective, and they like to slant the facts. And, and people are experts at turning things the way that they want them to be turned. And as believers in Christ, we have to submit ourselves to the truth of God's Word and make sure that, we, I mean, we can't change the culture, but we can focus and change ourselves as we submit to the Word of God and allow God, the Holy Spirit, to bring out the life of Christ within us, to convict us of our sin, and to willingly submit to the truths that God has laid out within His Word. Like most of us in this room, we've probably even participated in gossip about someone. May God forgive us. We are to seek what is best for someone else, and character assassination is not the way to do it. And if we don't bridle our tongues, then we're in serious danger. See, James says that we're in danger of deceiving our hearts. We have this way of always looking at ourselves in the best light with the best intention. I was reading this book recently about these prisoners that were in the the middle of prison. They were convicted of rape, molestation, murder, you name it. I mean, these were some pretty heinous criminals. And they interviewed each one. And each one of them thought they were a pretty good person. Because we have this tendency to think the best about ourselves. We, un- we excuse ourselves. We understand the intentions of our heart, even if our action wasn't quite right. We excuse it, and we try to find ways to justify our decisions and our choices day in and day out. And James is saying here, if you're not bridling your tongue, then you're deceiving yourself. You're trying to find excuses on why it's okay to talk about this person or that person. And as Christians, we do this a lot, and we cover it in spiritual language. Have you ever said, well, there's something I need you to pray about, and you give something about such and such a person. They're really struggling in their marriage. I just want to share that with you for prayer. The heart's not right there. Just keep your mouth shut. That's what we're to do, and that's the hardest thing to do. I find that the, the further that I progress in my Christian walk, I mean, 
Controlling our tongue can be the hardest thing to do. I don't know if it is for you. Some, some are more silent than others. But for someone who talks a lot, that's hard. I have to be very careful of that. And there's careless words that I've said. Uh, people that I've hurt, I've had to go back and ask for forgiveness for. And probably the most is in my own family. Uh, saying something that hurt them or put them in place. And we do this all the time. We have people we live with, people we work with, personalities that really grade us. And we say things in order to, to, to push them back, to put them in their place, whatever it needs to ha- whatever we see needing to happen at that moment in time. But we need to let God direct our tongue and watch our speech. So we have to learn to control our tongues. Words often, as Jesus well knew, represent the heart. It is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, after all. Now, if we don't bridle our tongues, as I said before, we are in serious danger, and we can deceive ourselves easily. James, however, uh, addressed our speech because he knew our propensity to cheat ourselves, because that's what it's doing. When you deceive yourself, you're actually really cheating yourself. Have you ever had someone cheat you for anything? Where they sold you something and it didn't work right, quite right, you got ripped off, or cheated at a game that you played? It's the worst thing. I hate, I hate playing with people that cheat drives me crazy. But here, the one that you're cheating is not another person. It's you're cheating yourself. See, what you're doing by cheating yourself, because that's what really deception is, it's cheating ourselves by accepting something is true when God sees it as false. And by believing that we are believers when our life doesn't reflect it or show the signs of God's Spirit at work in our lives, we are conning ourselves. So there's a reason why the Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. Look at your life. Are you truly in the faith? It doesn't mean about attending church. The question is, is in the, in the everyday decisions in which we make, that's where our faith is evident, not just on Sunday mornings. It's, it's in these decisions, in the interactions that we have, how we deal with our spouses, how we interact with our money, the entertainments that we take in, how we do our jobs and our work, examine our lives. Do they truly represent what Jesus wants them to represent? And there are some people that I see all the time, they say, well, I'm a Christian, but their life has no bearing on that fact. They are completely deceived. They think they're going to heaven when the reality is, is they're on the train bound for hell. And that's what James is saying. Take stock of your life. Really look at yourself to see if you are in the faith or not. Can you see the evidence of God's spirit in your life? Do you have the confirmation of God's spirit with your spirit that you are a child of God, as Romans testifies to us? So we have to examine our lives to do a thorough examination. I mean, what are we saying about others? What is our intent? Are we speaking ill about other people all the time? Are we gossiping about them to bring ourselves up? Are we trying to put them down to, or put them in their place so we can lift ourselves up? We have to control our tongues. And James says that if we don't, then our faith is worthless. And this word is fascinating. It means purposeless, without aim. It has no bearing whatsoever. I like to look at it as a counterfeit. Your faith looks one way, but it's really not there at all. 
See, that's the danger if we don't control our tongues and do it the way that God wants us to do. That we are in danger of cheating ourselves out of what God has for us and then conning ourselves that we're really in the faith and we're not. And that's ultimately a faith that is counterfeit, that's not real. And I've seen this even in churches. I've seen this with pastors. People go up and they say, praise the Lord, and yet they're deviously planning and hurting other people to bring them down so they can keep power. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. When you're trying to bring other people down, I don't even care if there are people in church or not, people in society, to bring yourself up, to make yourself look like you're in a better light than you are, that is not of God. This is where it gets really tough. This is where God has to perform spiritual surgery on our tongues and our hearts because really the tongue is just a representation of what's in our heart. We have to let God get down deep into who we are. Because our faith, when, it's, when we're not controlling our tongue, it's worthless, without purpose, without aim. It's not real. It looks good on the outside, but ultimately it means nothing. It's like counterfeit money. When it's put to the test, it's found worthless and thrown away. We can look good on the outside. We can fool some people, but we can't fool God. God's word remains true and indicts us in our heart. We can try to change, tinker, ignore, skip, or try to interpret it away, but it cannot and will not go away. God is the one who ultimately knows our hearts. We can't hide from his all-knowing and penetrating eye. Speech is a powerful thing, and true believers will seek to control it. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to have moments where you slip up, where you sin. But the question is, are you willing to go back and make the changes necessary and seek restitution and confession? That's the issue. Now, James shifts gears slightly and gives a positive characteristic that shows the validity and authenticity of our faith faith in verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, James highlights what true religion is, and it's one that involves service to others. Simple, service to others. That's what, that's how our faith is seen. Not just by coming and getting on Sunday morning, but going out and giving to other people. When it's inconvenient, when it's not comfortable, when it's hard, when it's costly, when people don't appreciate what we do, this is what we are called to do. And it's widows and orphans that he says here, but this is by no means um, just these two. Widows and orphans were the most vulnerable within Jewish society, especially. And it was the church that came along to help those who could not help themselves. Widows were especially in danger. I mean, they didn't have the singles culture that we have today where people could be really independent. A widow was susceptible to all kinds of schemes and scams and abuses and being taken advantage of, as was an orphan. They didn't have the orphanages that we have today. That, uh, we don't, they didn't have the state. They didn't have DCFS. They didn't have foster care. These children were running out on the street. And it was the church that came alongside to take care of these different people. And this is something that God's heart beats in the Old Testament, or heart beats for in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. For example, in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 19, Cursed be anyone who perverts this justice due to the sojourner, the foreigner, by the way, the sojourner, those who would not come from that land. You could put refugee in there if you wanted to. The fatherless, 
It's the orphan and the widow. And all the people shall say, Amen. Or Jesus expands this list again in the Scriptures. He calls the nation of Israel to serve other people, and, which is what Jesus is actually telling us, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 25. This is how a real faith is seen. So it's not just with widows and orphans and the sojourner, but it's even bigger. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? See, the early church dedicated themselves to preaching the gospel and did it through not just their words, but helping the vulnerable, poor, sick, and disenfranchised. They created hospitals, orphanages, and took care of the down and out and forgotten. That's how the church grew. As Rodney Stark, who's a Christian sociologist, historian, he noted that the early church's engagement with suffering people was crucial to its explosive growth. Cities in the Roman Empire were characterized by poor sanitation, contaminated water, high population densities, open sewers, filthy streets, unbelievable stench, rampant crime, collapsing buildings, and frequent illnesses and plagues. Life expectancy at birth was less than 30 years and probably substantially less. The only way for cities to avoid complete depopulation from mortality was for there to be a constant influx of immigrants, a very fluid situation that contributed to urban chaos, deviant behavior, and social instability. And rather than fleeing these urban cesspools, the early church found its niche there. The Christian concept of self-sacrificial love of others emanating from God's love for them was a revolutionary concept to the pagan mind, which viewed the extension of mercy as an emotional act to be avoided by rational people. Wow. Hence, paganism provided no ethical foundation to justify caring for the sick and for the destitute who were being trampled by the teeming urban masses. In contrast, Christianity revitalized life in the Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered it charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. See, God's kingdom strategy of ministering to and among the suffering was so powerful that other kings uh, took note. In the 4th century A.D., the Roman emperor Julian tried to launch pagan charities to compete with highly successful Christian charities that were attracting so many converts. And writing to a pagan priest, Julian complained, the impious, impious, excuse me, Galileans, or the Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. So this command hasn't changed in the last 2,000 years. We're still called to serve the hurting. That's That's who we're to serve, the hurting in our midst. Who are the hurting among us? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. Who's been marginalized or overlooked? What about those who have come from different countries and left their homelands? And we have many here. 
among us who've been torn from their homelands and their families? How can we help them? How can we affirm their dignity and not be paternalistic as if to give a handout, but to come alongside and partner with and learn from and let them help them assimilate within society and also benefit from the gifts that God has given them? See, we have this tendency to think of handouts. That's not it. It's coming alongside someone and saying that you might be new here. I'm going to help you navigate this. But it's also saying to them, I want to learn from you. I want to partner with you. I want to grow with you. I want to learn from you. Because, see, we always define, we often define as Westerners poverty in terms of money, shelter, food, water. But poverty is much bigger than that. Matter of fact, I think that we're some of the most poor people in the world in the United States. Now, let me define what that poverty is. Time poverty. We're, we're, time, we're, we're, we're time poor. Matter of fact, we're probably one of the most poor countries on the face of the earth when it comes to time. Because we're so busy doing everything else that we can't do the good things. See, poverty has many different aspects, many different facets. And one of the, the way that we define poverty is often in terms of giving things to other people and not realizing that poverty shows itself in the social interactions that we have. For example, per, someone that might ha- be poor, it's not that they're poor, but it's that they can't get their, their child can't get a present for their friend's birthday party. It's the social ramifications. It's sensing that when someone comes into your home and the feeling a sense of shame. Yes, we do and are blessed in our culture, but we also are looking at those around us wanting to find that norm in which we can live to interact effectively with those around us because we are social individuals. We're social creatures. So we have to understand that. It's a, how it affects our emotional and uh, social outlooks. As a matter of fact, one great book is called When Helping Hurts. And in it, the authors cited a study where they looked at those in poverty and had them define what poverty was. And not one of them defined poverty by material goods. It was by the social interactions and how it, how it poured out and spilled out in everyday life. So we have to understand that it's multifaceted. And when I say not paternalistic, what I mean is this. We don't come in and say that we have all the answers. We don't say, hey, I'm going to come and help you out now. That's demeaning. Do you want someone to do that to you? When I, when I go into different cultures, I, I, I interact with people. They say, well, what do you want to do here? And my, my first reaction is always this. I'm here to serve. I'm here to partner in whatever way that you believe that we can help you. And we also come, though, not just as servants, but as students, to learn from you. So we don't come in with all the answers. We come in saying that we're here to learn from you, too, because there's some things that you've dealt with in your culture that I've never dealt with in mine, and I want you to teach me. But when we come in saying that we have all the answers, then we're demeaning the dignity of those around us. And we have to affirm dignity. We don't give a person dignity. We affirm the dignity that God himself already gave them. Because we are made in the very image of God, each one of us. And that person is made in the image of God, just as you are. And and if truth be told, many of us are beneficiaries of choices that others have made that we ourselves didn't make at all in our own lives. In other words, I did not choose to be born in the United States of America. I did not choose to... Go to a public school and have the, be a beneficiary of public education to teach me to read. I didn't choose to go get clean water. It was already there for me. I was born into this. And there are others in the world, they are born into different situations. And I can't think I'm so great because I have this. I didn't make any choice on that. 
God allowed me to be born in this situation, but he does expect me to be a good steward of it and to help me to help other people and those that are hurting. And so we have to have a mature understanding of this. So don't think you're coming alongside and you're just going to give handouts. and that, that's, that's poor understanding. To come alongside to affirm dignity, help people make different choices, to love them, to learn from them as well, and, and to have a relationship with one another. It's easy to throw money at something. It's hard to invest our lives in something. Because that cost is much, much greater. So we have to, to help the hurting. Who are the hurting in our community? How can we affirm their dignity? What about the single parents out there that are struggling to make ends meet, regardless of why they're in that situation? We have some that just are willing to go there and there because they choose to be. It's because many of them haven't had the opportunity for choices that you have. And have, they, have you made poor choices in your life and had to deal with those situations? Yes, we all have. Sometimes there are greater consequences of those. We're still to come alongside to help people. We don't always put contingencies on it. You have to be this good or subscribe to this theology or look at this and that. I mean, we do want to examine the heart. If a person obviously is staying in a situation because they want to be, but you can't make that judgment. They have to make that. You have to, I mean, that's in the heart. You don't know. This is where it gets real tricky. This is where the gospel, though, must penetrate in our lives. We have to really understand, how do we help the hurting among us? I mean, even this past week, we got a phone call from uh, Constitution House, and I know some folks are uh, at Constitution House. They have asked our church whether or not we would be interested in conducting a Protestant service there. Now, some of, these, some of the individuals that are there have no other interactions. They've had no opportunity or access to the gospel. Uh, are, some of those are the older among us. And here's a great opportunity for, for someone in our church to step up and say, hey, I'd like to go and preach. I want to I go and serve. I want to love those who are, or in many ways, elderly that have been forgotten and neglected. We have that in our society going on more and more. I mean, there's so many different groups that we could draw attention to. I mean, who has a heart for that? Who, who are the hurting among us? What about those who have been abused or marginalized or neglected? You know, this past summer, we hosted a community-wide prayer meeting to stand up for those who have felt marginalized, marginalized, marginalized excuse me, and mistreated because of the color of their skin. And we are to stand up for those who have been hurt, and we partnered with them to give a voice, to hear one another, to, to pray together, to say, we're here for you, we're here to be with you, to, to partner, to break down barriers. Because there are people here that are saying, I feel hurt, I feel betrayed. And that hurt is real. And we want to come alongside to say, let's, let's hear. I want to hear. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to hear the pain that you're going through and help me to know how to help you. How can we do that? These are tricky. These are getting into real social life situations. But see, the gospel has to go beyond ourselves. It has to go in and penetrate race relations, interactions with our social system. It has to penetrate every single aspect of who we are. Those who are hurting to stand up for those who have been hurt, ensure the proper treatment of all peoples. Now, we're also to help the helpless. The helpless. That's the widow and the orphan. But there's more than that. See, those who can't help themselves. What about the, and, and again, today, for those who don't know, is actually Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And we affirm in, uh, life in all of its forms, all different colors, all different backgrounds. We want to affirm and defend life. And there is a war on life today within our culture. Um, 
And we have to understand that and affirm and stand for life. And I had the opportunity this past week of uh, visiting the uh, PIC, PIC, where the baby bottles are going to the Pregnancy Information Center with Michelle Gherkin, who is the director, and she uh, gave me a, a delightful tour. Uh, this is a, a group that stands at the threshold of uh, situations in life, uh, and mainly life and death in, in many, often, uh, many, many situations. Um, and they're interacting with women who are in very desperate and difficult situations where they feel that they have no hope, they feel they have no opportunity. Um, and it's interesting talking about, pro- I mean, we have protests going on all over America right now. I don't know if you've seen it in the news yesterday with pro-life, pro-choice, and I, I, I'm not getting into all of that right now. But to let you know this, and you may not know this about your pastor, I've been on both sides of that, of that argumentation. Um, when I was first became a believer in Christ, I was within the more of the choice camp. And I was confronted with a roommate who had said to me and really challenged my thinking on it because I said, you can't tell a woman what to do with her body. That was the argumentation that I had. And I know I'm going into very tricky ground right now with some people, and I know there are even different perspectives here. Um, and I, I remember saying that to someone, and he said, are you for murder? And I went, no, I'm not for murder. He goes, then how can you be for that to someone to murder a child? Now, that's stark language. People don't like that. It invokes a lot of emotion. It invokes a lot of feeling. It made me stop and re- rethink what is going on. And it, and it led me to a very difficult situation that was not fun. And I think it's the one we all have to encounter and deal with. Uh, because we have people that are in situations where they feel helpless and hopeless and trapped. And we have those who have no opportunity to choose whatsoever, meaning that child. And I remember finding myself at a pregnancy banquet with John Piper speaking. Uh, I've shared this story before. And uh, Piper got up and he started telling about how he had participated in a nonviolent protest um, at an abortion clinic trying to stand for the unborn. And he was arrested and put in jail. And he felt that if I could convince someone that it's a child, that they would not do, they would not commit the act. Simple enough. And he was interacting with a woman there that was a nurse. And they were going back and forth. She'd worked in an abortion clinic. And they'd gone back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And he, uh, he'd said, you know, it's a child. And she goes, you've said that time and time again. We already know it's a child. She goes, that's not in question. This is the, the abortion nurse that said this. She goes, oh, we understand it's a child, but what's the alternative? And you still can't affect a woman's right to choose. And he said, I had a realization, a moment at that time. He said, I realized that it didn't matter if I could convince a person that it was a child or not. It came down to the decision of whether the woman said who could live or who die. That it was sovereign over their body. And that's, that's a hard reality. I know to face. And again, I'm not a woman, but I, 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 I'm looking at this from a theological perspective. I'm looking at it. I'm trying to look at it and be also to be empathetic for those who have gone through this awful, awful procedure uh, and, and have lived with many, most oftentimes with years of regret and shame and guilt. And to see then that it comes down to that. Actually, most sin is that way. It comes down to that. I get to decide what I want to do with my body. I mean, it's, and this argumentation is not just limited to this. It goes to other things, too. We see that within the, the homosexual debate. We see that within the transgender argument that I am sovereign over what I want to do and the behavior that I want to have, and no one else can tell me otherwise. I'm going to deny the basics of my biology 
to do this. When you really get down into it, that's what it is. And that's, that's hard reality to face. And, and again, I understand that there are many times people have been in, in difficult and desperate situations, and they're not thinking of that in the moment. But that's what it is. It's, do I have the ability to be God and say who lives and who dies? Now, as I say that, and again, I know that there are some who are different sides of this debate and discussion, and I understand it's a very personal issue for you, and it is. It's, again, at the threshold of life itself. And again, this transcends ethnicity. As I was talking with Michelle Gherkin, she was saying that the, the number one clientele for those who are getting abortions are Anglos. But the fastest growing group is Hispanics, and most often between the age of 18 and 25. And these are people that have almost zero education, sometimes now with multiple children, and they're electing to get abortion because they have different fathers. Uh, many of these women that come in are having, they have different fathers for the different children. They're tired of dealing with that. See, this is where the church must come in. Not only must, must we be defending those who are unborn, but we must be willing to say to those who do seek to keep their baby to help them in their life situation. See, this is where the church has failed oftentimes. We're, we're willing to stand with those and say, hey, hey, don't abort that baby, but yet when you have that baby, we're not willing to give you any help whatsoever. Well, that's wrong too. We have to be able to help in those situations. We have to be willing to, to come alongside, to affirm, to help them get classes, to help babysit, to help them improve their life situation. Or if, if, if they want to adopt and give that child up for uh, adoption, to be there for them. I've had this very personal in my family. I've shared this before, where I was approached by uh, a family member of mine that said, um, we have uh, our daughter who is 15 years old is pregnant. Would you take the child? And at the time, I, my wife and I were debating. We were wanting to have another child, and we realized we sought counsel from those who had adopted. And, and the, the overall wisdom was, is this child will not be yours. Would you adopt? And nothing will stop her from coming back and getting that child at a later time. And we know of a family that was willing to, they're looking for a child, they want to adopt, they're ready right now. And we're like, hey, that's fantastic. They want that child. And so I went back to this family member and I said, you know, we're not going to take the child, but, and before I could even finish, they said, okay, we'll take care of it in our end. And they went out and aborted the child. That was horrific. And that's horrific to her. I mean, the girl now is in her 20s, almost 30, and she's dealing with the repercussions of that. I mean, I was talking with a friend of mine that was just here this past week. Her mother, when she was a teenager, had, was pregnant, and her family, her parents held her down and forced her to get an abortion. So it's, it's and, and her sister had gotten one too. She was in a period of her life where she was um, having fun. She couldn't handle a child. She got it. Now she's, in, she's living later, and she's just filled with regret. And I, I care too much about this. This is not a social issue. This is a biblical issue. And we're to defend those who can't defend themselves and have compassion on those to love them for those who have decided to make that decision. Not condemnatory, but to weep and love and embrace. That's what we're to do. And to, a willing to adopt, to open our doors. One of the things that thrills me about Village Bible Church is how many families have elected to adopt it's been wonderful. And we're going to hear more about this when I get to the end of my message, if I ever get there. Um, but the thrilling stories of so many families that said, we want to adopt. We want to, and it's not convenient. It's costly. Uh, 
And it's, it, it's, it's tough. But to see families willing to open their doors to say, we're going to help. And, and not just, by the way, in the abortion, the, that's not just, it just abortion, right to life. I mean, uh, the uh, sanctity of life doesn't just go for that. It is affirming dignity in all of its forms. And also it's against euthanasia, by the way. Euthanasia, meaning uh, physician-assisted suicide. Because we are to be for life. Even when life is hard. Even when that loved one is, is perishing or is hurting. I mean, now, that you know, in Europe, there are granted segments of, of they're granting minors the opportunity to get physician-assisted suicide. In the United States, there's debate on, on having children getting uh, gender reassignment surgery at the young age. I mean, some of them are like four years old. See, this is, this is where we have to stand in the sanctity of life all around because it's going to get worse and worse. Even with the transgender debate, I remember I mean, Joel was there. I, when I got ordained uh, in the pastoral ministry, I read a paper on what was going on in the transgender movement, and this is in 2005 because we saw it was coming down the pike to stand how God has made us to be. And that's, that's very, very tough to do because it limits. But see, when the gospel limits, it, it does so for our benefit and our blessing. And our sinful nature is going to rail against that. And we have to be able to, to take up our cross, die to ourselves, and live the resurrection life that Christ has for us. So they're very difficult decisions and very ethical questions that are very painful and very hard that people have to deal with. But, but allow me to say this. As I was speaking with Gherkin, she says, we, we don't use, uh, we try not to use pro-choice, pro-life. We actually say this, be pro-informed. Let's go to the Word of God and see what God says about all these different issues. And not get into the social capital of it and even our past decisions and issues and things like that. To say, what does God say to us about these issues? Because God is made in fashion life in all of its forms. And we want to affirm that. And we want to defend life. And be compassionate to those who might disagree with us, not condemnatory. Okay? And, and understand that even in the body of Christ, you're going to have these differences. Um, and to still love other people, even when we disagree very, very greatly about these issues. But to continue to go back to God and say, God, what do you say about this? Uh, and making sure, though, that we do stand for life in all of its forms. Now, we're to help the hurting. Uh, the helpless, and also the hopeless. For those that do feel trapped by life situations, as I was mentioning, I was speaking with Michelle Gherkin. She said many of these girls that we have that are coming in, she goes, are, are stuck in jobs or they're never going to get out of. Um, and your church could actually offer classes on offering things as Word, documents, Excel sheets, things like that, to help people improve their skills. These are tangible ways that we can help those who do feel trapped. Because you know what the hardest thing in the world to deal with? I mean, we can deal with a, a, a loss of property. We can deal with health issues. We can deal with all these different things. But when you have a loss of hope, then it's over. And I know that there are some that are, that are here that you feel hopeless. Hopeless to change. Hopeless that you'll never get out of your situation. Hopeless in choices in life. And we're to help those too because that's what the widow and the orphan really were experiencing. I mean, yes, they were hurting. Yes, they were helpless. But ultimately, it's a loss of hope. And as a church, Christ is the living hope. And because of that, we need to give hope to other people, to those who are truly feel hopeless. Continually to offer God's grace and mercy uh, for a people group, no matter what, who they are or what they believe. We're continually 
to offer God's grace and mercy for them as we serve and proclaim Christ crucified, died, buried, and risen again for them. It doesn't mean giving paternalistically either. It means affirming the dignity that is already there and helping them think through the solutions to their problems while offering them any assistance at the same time. Now, James continues in verse 27, and I'm going to walk through this rather quickly. He says, uh, he moves from taking care of widows and orphans. He's already spoken about the tongue, widows and orphans, to the last part, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this is where a lot of conservative Christians really focus. And I have a college classmate who has turned from the Word of God because of the subject of homosexuality. She wrote me a letter that, she, that we shouldn't care about what a person does in the bedroom, but should be more concerned about the AIDS orphans in Africa. And I responded that God calls us to take care of them and calls us to be unstained from the world, which means spurning the values the world espouses, especially when it's so obviously contradictory to the word of God. So our faith must show up in how we serve others and how we, and how we spurn the world. What does it mean to spurn the world then? What is the world? Well, a short definition of the world is this. It's anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That's a pretty good definition. David Wells. James explains this worldliness in James chapter 4, verse 1 through 4. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So he's talking about our sinful desires. These are the passions, these fallen desires that we have that are anti-God. But he says, you desire and you do not have. And so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. It causes fights, it causes quarrels, it causes issues. He goes, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you, ra- you ask wrongly to spend it on your, pas- your passions. You adulterous people. He calls this a spiritual adultery, by the way. This is serious. Do you not, not know with friendship with the world is enmity toward God? In other words, if you are adopting what the world values, you've now declared yourself a very enemy of God. Straight up. There is no, there is no gray area here. There are certain things that God's word condemns outright. And you say, well, I'm okay with this. There are other Christians that are okay with this. God's word says no. It says no. And now you're, if you say, well, I'm okay with this, you have declared yourself an enemy of God. I don't care if you have pastor on your name tag. You've declared yourself a very enemy of God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's crazy. I mean, that's heavy. We have to understand that. See, the world can be seen in the lives of God's people. Worldliness plays plays on our sinful desires and causes quarrels and fights. It brings about covetousness, our desire to acquire what someone else has. James calls it spiritual adultery, wanting what someone else has that you don't. He calls it friendship with the world, which is also called enmity, war with God. And going down that road makes you God's enemy. Author Ian Murray described worldliness as this. Worldliness is departing from God. It's a man-centered way of thinking. I love that part. Man-centered, because that's what it's ultimately about. It's about ourselves. It proposes objectives which demands no radical breach with man's fallen nature. How true. Basically, it's trying to sanctify sinful behavior. But he's saying, no, 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 that's, that's, that's worldliness. You can't do that. See, it judges the importance of things by the present and material results. It weighs success by numbers. It covets human esteem and wants no unpopularity. It knows no truth for which it is worth suffering. Oh, my. That's painful, by the way. Because he's saying that if you're going to take a stand for truth, you're going to suffer. But when you, when you allow anything, where's that line? 
You know, when you allow certain sinful behaviors, that's one of the things that's going on now with homosexuality, where it's so, so many said it was okay, and so now people are like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. There's all these other alternative things that are coming up now. You're seeing cases rising in cases of bestiality, incest, rape. All these things are coming out more and more. Because once you cross that line, where do you go? There is no objective any longer. It's all down to subjective. So it's not about what society says. Because society is going to love sin. Society is going to want to condone sin. It's going to make you look like a bigot, a liar, a hate-filled. Say what it will. But the reality is, if you stand for truth, they're the ones that are going to be the bigots and hate-filled because they're going to hate you. And they're bigoted toward you. There's a new, there's a thing going on now I like to call Christian phobia. Christian phobic. We have homophobic, transphobic, you know, xenophobic, Christian phobic. Let's get it out there. People are afraid of Christians and persecuting Christians. That's what it is. There are Christian phobics out there all, the place, all over the place. And anytime they see anything with faith, they start freaking out over it. Worldliness is the mindset of the unregenerate. It adopts idols and is at war with God. Here's the next author that talks about worldliness and all of its, um, everything that goes with it. C.J. Mahaney said this, Worldliness, then, is a love for this fallen world. It's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. More specifically, it is to gratify and exalt oneself to the exclusion of God. It rejects God's rule and places it with our own by creating our, our own Bibles. That's what Thomas Jefferson did. He took out all the miracles of Christ. Um, he said, it exalts our opinions over God's truth. It elevates our sinful desires for the things of this fallen world above God's commands and promises. So I'm going to go through these rather quickly because I have a video that I want to show you and I want to give enough time for it. So this is what we do. We are to spurn the world's appetites. In 1 John we read, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and it begins with the desires of the flesh. Our appetites, our sinful desires. And next we have our appearances. The world always wants to show off itself, how great I am, my accomplishments, my achievements. And then it also is shown in the applause that we seek. The applause that we seek. The New Living Translation uses words such as pride in our achievements and our possessions. See, the wording here means the braggadocio that... Uh, who exaggerates what he possesses in order to impress other people. We've all done that. Want to show off how great our clothes are, suit are, your dress, your shoes, your purse, your house, your car. We all have things we want to show off. But he's saying, no, 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 that's not from God. That's from the world. And if we do that, then the love of the Father is not in us. Mahaney said this, worldliness is so serious because Christ is so glorious. See, this is what pure religion looks like. God ruling our speech, giving ourselves in service, and spurning the world. Now, can we see that in ourselves? Does Christ rule over our speech, or are we given over to gossip, profanity, and slander? Can Christ be seen in our service to others? And lastly, are we spurning the world? And if not, why not? Why do we, we need to change to make sure the reality of our relationship with Christ. What do we need to change? That's what God has called us to do. Anything else is fake. 